This is Chapter 70 of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain. Chapter 70. We stopped some time at one of the plantations to rest ourselves and refresh the horses. We had a chatty conversation with several gentlemen present, but there was one person, a middle-aged man with an absent look in his face, who simply glanced up, gave us good-day, and lapsed again into the meditations which our coming had interrupted. The planters whispered us not to mind him. Crazy. They said he was in the islands for his health, was a preacher, his home Michigan. They said that if he woke up presently and fell to talking about a correspondence which he had some time held with Mr. Greeley, about a trifle of some kind, we must humor him and listen with interest, and we must humor his fancy that this correspondence was the talk of the world. It was easy to see that he was a gentle creature, and that his madness had nothing vicious in it. He looked pale, and a little worn, as if with perplexing thought and anxiety of mind. He sat a long time, looking at the floor, and at intervals muttering to himself, and nodding his head acquiescingly, or shaking it in mild protest. He was lost in his thought, or in his memories. We continued our talk with the planters, branching from subject to subject, but at last the word circumstance, casually dropped in the course of conversation, attracted his attention, and brought an eager look into his countenance. He faced about in his chair, and said, "'Circumstance? What circumstance?' "'Ah, I know, I know too well. So you have heard of it, too?' with a sigh. "'Well, no matter. All the world has heard of it. All the world, the whole world.' It is a large world, too, for a thing to travel so far in, now, isn't it? Yes, yes. The Greeley correspondence with Erickson has created the saddest and bitterest controversy on both sides of the ocean, and still they keep it up. It makes us famous, but at what a sorrowful sacrifice! I was so sorry when I heard that it had caused that bloody and distressful war over there in Italy. It was little comfort to me, after so much bloodshed, to know that the victors sided with me, and the vanquished with Greeley. It is little comfort to know that Horace Greeley is responsible for the Battle of Sadoa, and not me. Queen Victoria wrote me that she felt just as I did about it. She said that, as much as she was opposed to Greeley and the spirit he showed in the correspondence with me, she would not have had Sadoa happen for hundreds of dollars. I can show you her letter, if you would like to see it. But, gentlemen, much as you may think you know about that unhappy correspondence, you cannot know the straight of it till you hear it from my lips. It has always been garbled in the journals, and even in history. Yes, even in history, think of it. Let me—please uh, let me give you the matter exactly as it occurred. I truly will not abuse your confidence." Then he leaned forward, all interest, all earnestness, and told his story and told it appealingly, too, and yet in the simplest and most unpretentious way, indeed in such a way as to suggest to one all the time that this was a faithful, honorable witness, giving evidence in the sacred interest of justice, and under oath. He said, Mrs. Beasley, Mrs. Jackson Beasley, 
widow of the village of Campbellton, Kansas, wrote me about a matter which was near her heart, a matter which many might think trivial, but to her it was a thing of deep concern. I was living in Michigan then, serving in the ministry. She was, and is, an estimable woman, a woman to whom poverty and hardship have proven incentives to industry in place of discouragements. Her only treasure was her son William, a youth just verging upon manhood, religious, amiable, and sincerely attached to agriculture. He was the widow's comfort and her pride, and so, moved by her love for him, she wrote me about a matter, as I have said before, which lay near her heart, because it lay near her boys. She desired me to confer with Mr. Greeley about turnips. Turnips were the dream of her child's young ambition. While other youths were frittering away in frivolous amusements the precious years of budding vigor which God had given them for useful preparation, this boy was patiently enriching his mind with information concerning turnips. The sentiment which he felt toward the turnip was akin to adoration. He could not think of the turnip without emotion. He could not speak of it calmly. He could not contemplate it without exaltation. He could not eat it without shedding tears. All the poetry in his sensitive nature was in sympathy with the gracious vegetable. With the earliest pipe of dawn he sought his patch, and when the curtaining night drove him from it, he shut himself up with his books and garnered statistics till sleep overcame him. On rainy days he sat and talked hours together with his mother about turnips. When company came, he made it his loving duty to put aside everything else and converse with them all the day long of his great joy in the turnip. And yet was this joy rounded and complete? Was there no secret alloy of unhappiness in it? Alas, there was. There was a canker gnawing at his heart. The noblest inspiration of his soul eluded his endeavor. Viz, he could not make of the turnip a climbing vine. Months went by. The bloom forsook his cheek. The fire faded out of his eye. Sighings and abstraction usurped the place of smiles and cheerful converse. But a watchful eye noted these things, and in time a motherly sympathy unsealed the secret. Hence the letter to me. She pleaded for attention. She said her boy was dying by inches. I was a stranger to Mr. Greeley, but what of that? The matter was urgent. I wrote and begged him to solve the difficult problem, if possible, and save the student's life. My interest grew until it partook of the anxiety of the mother. I waited in much suspense. At last the answer came. I found that I could not read it readily, the handwriting being unfamiliar, and my emotions somewhat wrought up. It seemed to refer in part to the boy's case, but chiefly to other and irrelevant matters such as paving-stones, electricity, oysters, and something which I took to be absolution or agrarianism. I could not be certain which. Still these appeared to be simply casual mentions, nothing more friendly in spirit without doubt, but lacking the connection or coherence necessary to make them useful. I judged that my understanding was affected by my feelings, and so laid the letter away till morning. In the morning I read it again, but with difficulty and uncertainty still, for I had lost some little rest, and my mental vision seemed clouded. The note was more connected now, but did not meet the emergency it was expected to meet. It was too discursive. It appeared to read as follows, though I was not certain of some of the words. 
Polygamy dissembles majesty. Extracts redeem polarity. Causes hitherto exist. Ovations pursue wisdom. Or warts inherit and condemn. Boston botany cakes folony undertakes. But who shall allay? We fear not. Rurally heves village. But there did not seem to be a word about turnips. There seemed to be no suggestion as to how they might be made to grow like vines. There was not even a reference to the Beasleys. I slept upon the matter. I ate no supper, neither any breakfast next morning. So I resumed my work with a brain refreshed, and was very hopeful. Now the letter took a different aspect, all save the signature, which later I judged to be only a harmless affection of Hebrew. The epistle was necessarily from Mr. Greeley, for it bore the printed heading of the Tribune, and I had written to no one else there. The letter, I say, had taken a different aspect, but still its language was eccentric and avoided the issue. It now appeared to say, Bolivia extemporizes mackerel, borax esteems polygamy, sausages wither in the east, creation perdu is done, for woes inherent one can damn, buttons, buttons, corks, geology underrates, but we shall allay, my beer's out, yerverly, Hivase village. I was evidently overworked. My comprehension was impaired. Therefore I gave two days to recreation, and then returned to my task greatly refreshed. The letter now took this form. Poltices do sometimes choke swine. Tulips reduce posterity. Causes leather to resist. Our notions empower wisdom. Her let's afford while we can. Butter, but any cakes, fill any undertaker. We'll wean him from his filly. We feel hot. Yerxli, hivase, village. I was still not satisfied. These generalities did not meet the question. They were crisp and vigorous, and delivered with a confidence that almost compelled conviction. But at such a time as this, with a human life at stake, they seemed inappropriate, worldly, and in bad taste. At any other time I would have been not only glad, but proud to receive from a man like Greeley a letter of this kind, and would have studied it earnestly, and tried to improve myself all I could. But now, with that poor boy in his far home languishing for relief, I had no heart for learning. Three days passed by, and I read the note again. Again its tenor had changed. It now appeared to say, "'Potations do sometimes wake wines.' Turnips restrain passion. Causes necessary to state. Infest the poor widow. Her lord's effects will be void. But dirt, bathing, etc., etc., followed unfairly, will worm him from his folly. So swear not. Yerxli, hivase, village. This was more like it. But I was unable to proceed. I was too much worn. The word turnips brought temporary joy and encouragement, but my strength was so much impaired, and the delay might be so perilous for the boy, that I relinquished the idea of pursuing the translation further, and resolved to do what I ought to have done at first. I sat down and wrote Mr. Greeley as follows. Dear Sir, 
I fear I do not entirely comprehend your kind note. It cannot be possible, sir, that turnips restrain passion, at least the study or contemplation of turnips cannot, for it is this very employment that has scorched our poor friend's mind and sapped his bodily strength. But if they do restrain it, will you bear with us a little further and explain how they should be prepared? I observe that you say, causes necessary to state, but you have omitted to state them under a misapprehension you seem to attribute to me interested motives in this matter to call it by no harsher term but i assure you dear sir that if i seem to be infesting the widow it is all seeming and void of reality it is from no seeking of mine that i am in this position she asked me herself to write you i never have infested her indeed i scarcely know her i do not infest anybody I try to go along, in my humble way, doing as near right as I can, never harming anybody, and never throwing out insinuations. As for her lord and his effects, they are of no interest to me. I trust I have effects enough of my own, shall endeavor to get along with them at any rate, and not go mousing around to get a hold of somebody's that are void. But do you not see? This woman is a widow. She has no lord. He is dead. Or pretended to be when they buried him therefore no amount of dirt bathing etc etc however unfairly followed will be likely to worm him from his folly if being dead and a ghost is folly your closing remark is as unkind as it was uncalled for and if report says true you might have applied it to yourself sir with more point and less impropriety very truly yours simon erickson in the course of a few days, Mr. Greeley did what would have saved a world of trouble, and much mental and bodily suffering and misunderstanding if he had done it sooner. To wit, he sent an intelligible rescript or translation of his original note, made in a plain hand by his clerk. Then the mystery cleared, and I saw that his heart had been right all the time. I will recite the note in its clarified form. Translation potatoes do sometimes make vines turnips remain passive cause unnecessary to state inform the poor widow her lad's efforts will be vain but diet bathing etc etc followed uniformly will wean him from his folly so fear not yours horace greeley but alas it was too late gentlemen too late the criminal delay had done its work young Beasley was no more. His spirit had taken its flight to a land where all anxieties shall be charmed away, all desires gratified, all ambitions realized. Poor lad, they laid him to his rest with a turnip in each hand. So ended Erickson, and lapsed again into nodding, mumbling, and abstraction. The company broke up and left him so, but they did not say what drove him crazy. In the momentary confusion, I forgot to ask. End of chapter 70